Now this is the word of the Lord. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That your word and power would indeed go forth and do its work, for we know it does not return void. We ask, Lord, Spirit, that you would discern our thoughts, know our hearts, and if there be any grievous way in us, lead us to the way that is everlasting. We pray, Lord, that your word would be preached and that the work of that word will be done by your spirit. Would you do your intricate work in our hearts, in our lives? Would you meet us where we need to be so that our whole lives and every part of it would be in submission and obedience to you? For we know in that state our joy is made full. So have your way in us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. As we continue in our series, we find ourselves on a text with a similar theme as before. In chapter 4, we see the Apostle Paul continue his letter to Timothy, addressing once more false teachers and false teachings. And so indeed, this morning, we have a little bit of a heavy text. And as we reflect, I'd like us to think about our own faiths, our faiths. I'd like us to think about our lives in accordance to what we say we believe. Just in this year alone, we have seen some sad and heartbreaking examples. In 2019, if I can give us a few examples, forgive me, sound room, click yes. We have our brother Joshua Harris, he was a former pastor and author uh, on Instagram, wrote this. I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for, de for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Click. David Grass, a f uh, former pastor in, in Missouri, on Instagram again, came out and wrote, after 40 years of being a devout follower, 20 of those being an evangelical pastor, I am walking away from faith. Even though this has been a massive bomb drop in my life, it has been decades in the making. Click. Marty Sampson, he's a worship leader on Hill Songs. He co-authored many songs that we would be familiar with and even have sung in this uh, chapel together. And he, he wrote this. I'm genuinely losing my faith, and it doesn't bother me. Like, what bothers me now is nothing. I am so happy now, so at peace with the world. It's crazy. And for all I know, I, I do believe that 
these men as examples. Uh, I don't want to use them to pick on them, but I want us to see um, that, that, that the reality of people falling away from the faith is true, that people in the limelight, people who have authored, people who have preached to masses of crowd, people who have led worship to the thousands of people in arenas and fields are, are, are not exempt from, from falling and stumbling and walking away from faith. Nor am I and nor are you. And so we see in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul uh, tells Timothy to confront these false teachers. And today, the Apostle Paul gives us a little bit more about what is going on. And in these short five verses, I, I think we can hear uh, three di distinct voices, if you can click. And so we'll ask, as we look at our text, what does the Spirit say? What do the demons say? And what should the Christians say? In the short five verses, we see the Spirit saying something, the demon saying something, and also the Christian's response. So point one, what does the Spirit say? Click. If we look at verse one, it says this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. This is not just any spirit. This is not something that came out of a, a crystal ball or a vision or a dream. But in fact, this is none other than the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that speaks, much akin to the language in the Old Testament used when, when, it, when, when people say, thus says the Lord. That means that when the Spirit is saying this, that some will depart from the faith, it is prophetic, it is authoritative, and it is explicitly addressing this issue, that some will depart from the faith. This is the reality, and it should not cause us to, to think that the church of God will fail. Sometimes we get so discouraged when we see uh, very prominent people in ministry fall, and we wonder, is the church of God going to succeed and endeavor on? And we know here the Spirit, God Himself, recognizes this, that some indeed will fall from the faith. But it doesn't mean that the church is failing. It doesn't mean that the church will fail. It means that God will continue to preserve his saints, lead his church forward. But there will be some who seemingly seem to be a part of the faith, but will fall away. Now, this is important because throughout church history, by way of heresy and false teaching, some have actually invented doctrines contrary to this fact, contrary to God's Word, contrary to what He even reveals about Himself in Scripture. And if you recall back in Genesis, we know that, that the first heretic was even uh, uh, written about in Genesis 3 when, when Satan himself comes to Adam and Eve and he says this, did God really say as to challenge and, and contort God's Word? Did God really say? And we see throughout history, we see uh, preachers and theologians to some degree or another, basically say that, you know what? God is love. He loves everyone, and everyone at the end is just going to go to heaven because God is love, and God loves you. And in things like this, it neglects a, a profound and hard truth that, in fact, that, no, not everyone will go to heaven. Not everyone ha has been found in Christ. That some will depart from 
the faith. Now the Spirit says that, that some will depart from the faith in later times. So we have to ask the question, when the Spirit is speaking about later times, what is he referring to? Click. I know we don't do much of this here, but, but, but I think this will be helpful. Again, the Spirit says, equates, equivalent to, thus says the Lord. This is God himself speaking. And, and, and in the verb of, of speaking or saying, if we look at it grammatically, it's in the present tense, indicative mood, and active voice. So what that basically means is that the Spirit is speaking about a present reality. That something that should concern us now. It's not something in the past. It's not, it's not something in the future, but it is in the present voice. It is in the indicative mood, meaning it's, it's, it's factual. And it's in the active voice as, as the Spirit of God is, is saying this now. It's a fact that is being spoken now and is presently relevant. So then the question of later times comes in. What, what do we mean by later times? In later times, this phrase is, is also akin to in these last days found in Hebrew 1. In Hebrew 1, if you remember, it says this. It says... It says, it long ago, it says, long ago, in many ways, in many times, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by son. And so the phrase, later days, or, or these last days, is actually referring to an era, or a time period, it is referring to the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And so this is important because it, 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 it alerts us to know that what the Spirit is saying in 1 Timothy 4.1 is relevant now. That the, the present voice in the factual indicative mood actively now being heard by you and I in this present age, in this later times right now is relevant. And so when Timothy is reading this, he's not thinking, oh, okay, somewhere in the future people are going to be leaving in the faith. We're okay right now. Nor should you and I think, oh, the Spirit is talking about later on. No, this is relevant now. This is pertinent now. What the Spirit is telling you and I now and what he has said in the past is that some will fall away. Some will depart from the faith. And this departure, meaning, meaning to abandon or to fall away, to turn away, to rebel against, to forsake, to leave, to give up on faith in Jesus Christ will happen because some will devote themselves, as it is said here, to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And so we know that the ultimate work of people falling away, of people being stumbled and led astray, the ultimate work of false teachers and false teachings and heresies is credited to none other than the enemy of God, Satan, the devil, deception, and demons. If you, if you remember in Luke 8, Jesus explains the parable of the sower. What is the parable of the sower? Well, it goes on to say that, that, that seeds are scattered out. And then it goes on and addresses various types of ground or, or, or 
area that the seed lands on. And, and, in, and one of the places uh, that is addressed is that the seed lands on a, a rocky place. And, and Jesus, he, he explains what this means. And, and Luke 8, 13 says, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and then time of testing fall away. And so the, 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 the stark reality is that, the, the, that there are people who on the outside look like Christians, who, who, who verbally sound like Christians, yet they have heard the gospel, received it with joy, but for a short while, when testing comes, fall away. And in 1 John 2.19, we went through this series, we remember the author saying that, that these false teachers went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So what are some of the implications of this hard reality? Well, it's relevant right now in this chapel for you and for me that if that is a reality, that people fall and depart away from faith, that, that, that people can be so deceived that they think they have heard the gospel and enjoy responding to it, yet when testing comes, walk away from it, then it ought to cause you and I right now in this present moment to consider the fact that we are actively being challenged and even encouraged to consider where we stand before Jesus Christ. And, and this is not a scare tactic. This is not a way uh, for religious guilt to be imparted to keep the masses in line. This is a reality that many times that we see people who profess faith walk away. And so this, this, true, this tough truth remains that, that the promise of uh, Philippians 1.6 of God completing the good work he began in you until the day of Christ remains. The promise that, that what Jesus says in John 10.28 that, that no one will snatch them out of his hands remains. The truth that you cannot lose your salvation, that remains. But there is another truth that also comes so that we don't find lazy comfort in that theology to say, hey, be careful on how you are living because you could be living a life of hypocrisy that can ultimately lead you to shipwreck your faith. That could ultimately lead you to perhaps realize that you did not truly trust in the Lord. The fact remains today that those who are not truly in Christ will not remain. And even though we have the assurance of salvation, that assurance should be rightly tested. You know, I struggled a lot as I thought about this message because I, I kept thinking about us all here. And I, and I, I kept thinking about my, my old youth group students and how this, 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 uh, this, this truth and this doctrine it, it can, can be so discouraging sometimes because, because I, I tell students, you can never lose your salvation, and then they're happy. And then, and then I tell them, but, but at the same time, you, we have to be faithful. And, and then that the reality is that some do walk away from the faith. And then all of a sudden, they come to the conclusion, what if I'm not a Christian? What if, what if I've never believed? What if I'm one of them? 
And, and, and at that moment, pastorally, I have to do this. I have to, I have to think about their lives as far as I know. And, 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 and I have to, if I see a, 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 a weakness and a faint-heartedness and a troubledness, that they indeed do trust in Christ, but right now the circumstances are hard and so they need to be encouraged, then I have to give them assurance. No, you are doing okay. Repent, turn to the Lord, and he will be gracious to you. Yet at the same time, if I see in them a waywardness, a rebellion, then i got to warn them. i got to say, yeah, you might be a Christian. I don't know. Only God knows that. But if you don't turn from your ways right now, you are going to shipwreck your faith. And so it's a testing of faith. And so even for us this morning, I, I want us to consider submitting ourselves. I know it can be scary, but to really honestly think about our faith. When the Spirit is saying this, He's not talking about just, just Josh, Dave, and Marty that I gave as examples. He's not talking about the people you're thinking about, like, man, I wish she was here to hear this message. Man, this would wake him up. Oh, I wish oh, if she only heard this message... It's not, it's not talking about people that we want to, to hear this message. It's, it's not talking about the people who are sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you. This is talking about you. You. Are you walking faithfully in the faith? If you are faint-hearted and you are tired and you are weary and you want to trust the Lord, but you are not sure then yes, brother and sister, no one can pluck you out of his hand. Yet if you are wayward and your life is filled with hypocrisy and deceit and double-mindedness and double life, then no, you need to take this warning. The only thing that can be said for sure is today, if you hear the Spirit's voice, do not harden your hearts, as the author of Hebrews says. Today, if you hear his voice. Second point. What do the demons say? Click, please. Verse 2. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And so, before we go into what the demons say, I want us to look at the manner in which they are speaking Again, we are told that the false teachers are instruments of Satan himself, of demons, and they are causing others to stumble. But what manner do they speak? And we're told that they are insincere, that there is hypocrisy, a deep hypocrisy in their life. We are told that they are liars, that, 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 that they are deceitful. And we are told that their consciences are seared. And remember in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul also tells Timothy, and, and remember that we are told that false teachings, what do they do? They promote speculation. They cause wandering and vain discussion. They make assertions to things they do not understand. And ultimately, their conscience, the thing that ought to guide them to faithfulness, has been seared. Now, if, if, if we consider the way the word conscience is being used by the Apostle Paul, we see that he, he likes to make this comparison of the conscience. The conscience is either good and it's clear and it holds the mystery of the faith and faithfulness, or the conscience can be seared and led away. 
And here we are told that these, these false teachers, these people who, who exemplify lives of her, you know, her, her, heretical beliefs, their conscience are seared. And, and one way, some, some translators take it as the searing is a type of branding that, 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 that signs their belongingness to Satan. And at, and at the same time, translators say the searing can also refer to uh, their conscience being seared in such a way where they, they no longer feel or are receptive to the Spirit's moving. See, a seared conscience is ineffective in guiding one to follow after Christ or to keep step in the Spirit. If faith is something that we believe in, the conscience helps us to take that faith and put it into action, whether it means forgiving one another, repenting, turning to Christ, making reconciliation, turning away from that thing on the Internet, closing our mouths in that discussion, whatever it means when... Apostle Paul is using this word of conscience. It, 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 it's something that the Spirit uses to guide us, steer us, so that we do not shipwreck our faith. But we're being told that these teachers, their consciences are seared, that they are actually blind, leading the blind. So what do they say? Click. This is what they're saying. They, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. They forbid marriage, and then they make dietary restrictions. Now, these are two specific things that, that they are teaching, and the Apostle Paul is pointing out. Now, I wanna, I'll, I'll try to explain the logic to you, but, but in, in, in trying to explain the logic, you'll see that it doesn't make sense. But here I go. Why did they do this? Why did they try to uh, forbid marriage and, and, and make dietary uh, rules? So here it is. So, so basically, in, in Matthew 22, 30, Jesus says, in, in, in heaven there will be no marriage, there will be no husband, no wife. Okay. In the Garden of Eden, before sin entered, uh, there seems to be a vegetarian diet, right? And, and so then the understanding here is this, that, that, that when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, sin was defeated in such a way that it no longer is present in the world or in our lives. And so the thinking is this, if sin is completely gone, and if Christ defeated it, then okay, there's no need for marriage or we shouldn't in, in, in enjoy fleshly things. And it's, it's getting to perhaps uh, uh, sexual desires as well. If, if that is true, we shouldn't indulge in foods or things that go into our body that make us satisfied in a fleshly way. What it basically boils down to is this. Since Jesus died on the cross and all sin is gone, now I have to live a life worthy of that by my own strength, by my rules and regulations, because there is a fear that I'm going to undo Christ's work. It, it doesn't make sense. It shouldn't make sense, because Scripture teaches completely against that. It's utterly contrary to the gospel. Why? Because when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, yes, sin was defeated once for all. But in these later 
times, in these last days before Christ comes again, it is hard. There will be trials and tribulations and we ought not to be surprised by them. There will be victories and losses in the battlefield, but the war is won. So as we live in this present age, we talked about it being like a wilderness. It's not a paradise. The goal is not to go back to Eden and become vegetarians who walk around naked. No, the goal when Jesus comes back is the new heavens and the new earth coming down where every tear is wiped away all sin is gone there's no more death I don't know if we'll be naked or not maybe I like that it's comfortable but the point is right now in this present age from when Christ came and when he will come again in this span in this era this epoch this age there will be struggles and there will be need for endurance. There will be need to turn from sin and trust in him over and over and over again. And that is why we need our conscience intact. Because if the spirit doesn't lead us, we are going to waver from the narrow path and shipwreck our faith. If you think about it this way. I've explained it before, but I'll do it again. Most false teaching can be very neatly categorized into two. One, you have what these false teachers are advocating for right now. Forbidding marriage, sexual pleasures, and even abstaining from foods. This is what we can call aestheticism, legalism, religiousness, self-righteousness, self-works, whatever semantic works for you, the point of this category of religion is you have to do something to earn Christ or God's love. And so you have to abstain from marriage and you have to abstain from certain foods. Right? Most false teachings fall either under this or this. You don't have to do anything. If God really loves you, he'll forgive you of everything. This is e-religion. This is complete and utter sinful liberation to anything. This is full enjoyment. This is my body is my flesh. When I'm resurrected, I'll just be spirit. So it doesn't matter how much I give into sexual pleasures or how much I feed my flesh or what I do. You are either overly religious or you are completely irreligious. Those are the two categories that we often find false teachers dipping into to give us a cup of their sewage. But the gospel is neither. The gospel says Christ died for you, he loves you, and when you are in him, his spirit will guide you and lead you to the way that is everlasting. And think about some of the other religions out there. Right? A lot of other religions have, have, have either uh, aestheticism where you're denying of, of something, it's do's and don'ts, and then, and then some, some have things where you can just completely enjoy. In, in, in Hinduism, the cow is sacred. And in, 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 for Muslims, the, the, the pig is dirty. In Buddhism, you isolate yourself from the world and you abstain from, from almost all things that are material or physical. In, in, in Judaism, everything has to be kosher. Nothing clean or unclean can go into your body. Even the Apostle Paul says, it's not what about goes into your body, it's what comes out of your body. That's what's dirty, right? And, and Catholics, they have the filet of fish I'm just kidding, I'm, I'm not going to knock on the filet of fish I don't want to get stoned here today, right? But if you think about religion, it's a do's and don't situation. If you think about e-religion, it's a you can do whatever you see fit type of religion. 
They're both religious or irreligious, whatever you want. It's semantics, but it's not the gospel. It's false teaching. It's seared consciences that will end up shipwrecking your faith. So what are the implications? So, 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 so th this is really important, okay? Because it's so easy for us to think about other religions or false teachings or different people that we've met on the street in front of Wawa who are trying to evangelize their false teachings. It's so easy to, to think about them. It's easy to think about the people in college that we used to worship with, but that they've, they've fallen away. But what, what the Spirit is actively, factually, presently challenging you and I right now is, are we in in line with what we say we believe in. As a Christian sitting here who woke up, dressed, sits here, sings songs, prays, listens to the sermon, and goes back out into the world, is our lives in step to the gospel? Are our consciences intact in such a way? I'm not speaking just ethically, morally, because that's been skewed all over the place out there in the world. I'm talking about our consciences are they, are, they, are they supple? Are they sensitive to the way the Spirit is leading? When you, when, when you are faced with a tough decision, whether it be temptation, whether you got to flee, whether you got to shut it off, whether you got to shut your mouth, whether you got to speak up, whatever it is, in those moments when the Spirit moves you, is your conscience aware of what God is leading you towards? Or has it been years, months, days since you felt a conviction into action? And let me confess to you, and hopefully this will make it maybe a little bit easy for, for, for you all, that this is something people in leadership of ministry have to consider often. I have to consider this. Have I let my service become my identity? Am I just doing a job, or do I really believe what I am preaching? Am I living in such a way when I tell this brother, brother, flee from temptations of lust and pornography? Am I indulging it? Am I telling this brother, brother, fight the good fight of faith in moments where you want to give up, and have I given up? Am I telling people in the hospitals hope in Christ and the everlasting, yet in my life I fear death and even things and outcomes of my family in the future? Am I living? Is my conscience being guided by the Spirit? And I have to confess to you, there are many times I do feel a hardening of my heart and I have to come and soak it in the rivers of God's grace. And the reason I tell you this is because if that is you... I don't want you to feel shunned or ashamed or feel like this is not the place for you. I don't want you to feel like all hope is lost because as so long as you have breath and I have breath and we have breath, we will exhort you, challenge you, love you, and speak God's word into you and you will know that the Spirit is trying to move your conscience. Are our lives, are, are, are any of us on a path that is destined to shipwreck our faith. Now, I want to talk about the seer conscience because it, sometimes uh, we can think about it as a, a conscience that's seared doesn't feel anything, like, like it's kind of, kind of cauterized or it's just it's numb. But I, but I think a seer conscience is, is, is basically this. It's a conscience that is unable to balance and be led by, to be balanced and led by the Spirit. What do I mean by this? If you are constantly feeling guilty at the message of the gospel, 
If, if guilt and shame is the only thing you feel when you hear that Jesus died on the cross for you, then, then, then there's something with the conscience that is seared in a certain way where, where all you're feeling is, is, is guilt and shame. When you hear the gospel that Jesus loves you and died for you, and, and the only thing you feel is an utter liberation of, oh, that means I can do whatever I want and enjoy all the things that God has created, something is, is seared and off here. A conscience that is healthy is balanced in such a way when the Spirit leads, you are kept in the narrow. And so let me say this again. <clears throat> Maybe I'm overreacting, but I know some of us are very, very, very guilt-oriented, particularly if you've grown up in the church, if you've heard the Christian message before, if you've stumbled and, and, and fall so many times and, and you, you, don't, you haven't felt the Lord moving in a long time. Hear the gospel message and know that you are a sinner, but you are saved. You are a sinner and you are saved. That's, that's one message. You are a sinner that has been saved if you believe in him. You know, um, the, the staff, we, we try to work out together a little bit. Uh, and one of the brothers, I won't say who, um, so Pastor Stephen and I and John and myself, one of the brothers, um, he's a little bit more mechanical in his movements. You know, I got a little flow, you know, so I, you know, I got a little experience and so, you know, it's not me. But um, one of the brothers, it's funny, and I don't want to throw him too far on the bus, but we're, we're doing like this, like, dumbbell lunge thing, right? And you know, the movement is, it's supposed to be fluid. I look at my brother and he goes like this. And I'm just like, oh man, he's pop, lock, and dropping. I'm like, yo, it's one movement. It's got to be fluid. You're going to hurt yourself. Why, why are you breakdancing right now? But that's a lot of times we, 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 we think the gospel is like this kind of like, I, I'm a sinner, uh, and then I gotta do move, uh, then I'm saved by grace, and then and I gotta do something else to, to experience it. It's one fluid message. The gospel says you are a sinner who have been saved by grace, and once you are in Christ, the Spirit of God will lead you down the straight and narrow in a fluid way. Whether your name is Josh, Dave, Marty, Stephen, Walton, John, Jess, Glow, Gwen, it doesn't matter what your name is. It doesn't matter what your title is. This morning we are to consider, are we being led by the Spirit? Last point, click. So what should the Christian say in light of this? For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Everything God created is good, is the basic principle. Everything God created is good in its right context. So I think the two S words we avoid in church is what? Satan and sin. Ooh, it just sounds nasty. Satan and sin. And maybe that's why Satan uses so much, I'm not sin, I'm sorry, Satan and sex. Right? Maybe, and maybe that's why that, that is often the, the avenue in which we, f- we face so much temptation and, and failure. Sex. Sex, 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 sex. Right? Stop feeling uncomfortable. Sex. The Bible talks about sex a lot. The Lord cares about sex. Okay? Sex. It's a beautiful gift from God to be enjoyed with your spouse in the context of marriage. Sex is supposed to be enjoyed between a husband and wife who have given their life to one another. Sex is supposed to be enjoyed without guilt or shame before the face of the Lord. Sex is not something that should be hidden in a dark place, 
secretly layered between multiple windows. Sex is not something that happens on accident or by trickery at a bar. Sex is not something that happens by sex appeal. Sex is something beautiful. And it's a gift to be enjoyed in marriage. And so some religious would say that all fleshly desires, particularly sex, is, 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 is bad. It's fleshly. But you, you ask, you know, the married folks here, you, you ask the married folks, and I, you know, I, I think in, in my own personal view of this, I, I, and I've shared with some brothers in private, man, like, when you're, when you're married and you are able to experience the intimacy of sex, with your spouse and after feel no guilt and shame but only only the bliss of your spouse and the blessedness of the lord that's something because most of us particularly men and i know women too it, 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 the pornography and lust is, is and, and and sex is such, so rampant but but those of you can uh, testify to this sex in marriage is so beautiful how many times in the wrong context of sex do you walk away empty dirty broken self-loathing in its right context in the context of marriage you emerge in bliss and blessedness and, and, and I remember that that's when I thought this is what sex is supposed to be like before God and with someone who loves you and has given their life to you sex is not a bad thing but it must be taken with thanksgiving in the right context food you know I love food, maybe too much. Maybe that's an area, obviously, I have to repent of. But food is a beautiful gift from God to be enjoyed. But many of us are so busy worshiping it, seeking it out in so many ways. You know, I think uh, the, the, the food thing right now, if I'm honest, I think it's become a very respectable uh, idol. I think, I think we chase after food and, and different aspects of it in, in a way that might not, might not be godly, dare I say it. But food is to be enjoyed. Great food is to be enjoyed with thanksgiving from God. See, see, it has to be in its right context. Click in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 14. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So he's saying that everything that God created is good. It should be received with thanksgiving. But if you are dominated by that, if you're dominated by sex, fleshly desires, if you're dominated by food in such a way that that's where your soul is filled and not just your stomach, there's an issue. Click. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The body, the flesh, material is important because when Christ comes again, whether we're still you know, walking around to see it or not, our bodies will be raised from the grave and made new. So a couple application points here. Pray before you eat. I don't know if that sounds anticlimactic. Pray before you eat. Here's a challenge. If the meal was really good, pray after you eat. Say, God, man, I was so encouraged. Because, you know, sometimes when you eat a good meal, you sit there and you're like, man, I needed that. And that's okay. Man, I needed that. Man. And that's all right. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord for that. 
If he has communicated his goodness to you through a great bowl of fog on a, on, a, on, a, on a dreary, rainy day, say, thank you, God. I know this is your mercy that is new today. Pray before sex, after sex. I know, that's weird. Some of us might need the, the, the Spirit's help in that. Not in, not in the performance aspect, but in this. Listen, before I lose you, before I lose you, come back, come back, come back. Praying before and after sex, I'll leave that up to your spouse, okay? Um, that's just a, a practical way, I think. But, but listen, what I, what I mean by this is, this is because I think even in marriage, a lot of times, um, sex can be viewed, even especially by men, uh, still as self-serving. I'm going to get what I want. I'm, I, I, need to, I need to fill my fleshly desires. Now, sex, even in the right context of marriage, doesn't mean that your heart can be in whatever state. Sex in the good context of marriage should make you think, this isn't just for me to fill my flesh. This is actually a way for me to serve my spouse. So even sex, it's not about me getting what I want, but it's about loving your spouse and serving. Sex is about serving your spouse and enjoying that together. And so maybe before in the heat of the moment, it might be weird, but after, after you've emerged in blessedness and bliss, Thank the Lord, because you're blessed. And single people, press on. Press on. Fight the good fight. And I know we've paused a little bit in some humor, but I, I want to bring it back. Let, let, me, let, me, let me land it by, by saying this. If, if we walk away today without allowing our faith to be challenged, without each and every one of us really sitting there before God and allowing the Holy Spirit work, because some of us need right now to feel the Lord again, then, 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 then we've wasted our time. But, but as Second as Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. If, 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 if we can spend the time this morning before God to say, You know what, God? My conscience, I don't know if it's seared, but it's, but it's definitely hardened. My heart, I, I don't know if it's fallen away from you, but I know that over the past days and weeks and months and years, it, it has gotten hard. And this isn't just for the visitors or newcomers. This is particularly for those in leadership. If you've been serving in the same ministry for years, if you have a title over you, whether you're ordained or you're some kind of a leader, particularly for those who serve a lot in the church, and even the ones who are new and visiting, if, if you feel that your heart this morning, the spirit is tugging, do not deny him. Sit in it and say, Lord, Lord, convict me to repentance of my sin and show me the glory of Christ once more. And I, I know this is not a youth group retreat, but I'd even challenge you, don't leave your seats until that happens. Even if the response song is going, don't leave your seats until that happens. Let's pray. Let's pray.